Guys, uh, I know we believe in providence and sovereignty and all that, but uh, two things. One, Jaron and Scooter, drummer and guitar player, literally live in the house behind our church. Uh, somehow Jaron still can't be on time, though. Um, but uh, Kidding. Uh, but that song, literally, I mean, I know we believe in providence, like I said, but that song was a way better sermon than I'm about to try to preach. So I'm like, should I even, should we just sing that song a couple more times and... What I, if, if you don't understand, or if nothing I say makes sense, I'm trying to do that, trying to uh, say through Scripture what we just sang, so thank you, it's good. Um, so, my name is Elliot Cherry, uh, my two kids in the back, Esther and Winton, uh, two of my favorite people in the world, uh, didn't mind coming with Daddy tonight. Um, I'm a pastor up in Nashville uh, at a church, uh, it's kind of a family of churches, we're one church, multiple congregations, you don't need to know or care about that, but Midtown Fellowship, uh, and I'm the lead pastor of our 12 South location, um, right behind Belmont University, and um, was in youth ministry for a handful of years, and then um, was out of ministry for a little bit, and then the Lord called me back in, so I'm uh, kind of shocked that I'm here, but uh, it's, it's a joy to be here, um, and uh, have like sat where you sat, and worked at IPC, got some IPC in the house in Memphis, I worked for Richie. Uh, when he was the senior pastor at IPC, um, and I, I saw him this week actually, but I, uh, it's never a, it's never wise to follow Richie, and so um, I, again, uh, whatever I might try to say tonight, just just like remember that Monday was great. Uh, Monday night was Monday night was strong. Uh, when we had uh, our third born a couple years ago. Um, when I was out of the pulpit for a few weeks, Richie covered for me, and I came back, and it seemed like everybody was sad that I was back and wished that <laughs> Richie had still been there. So um, anyway, enough about my, where's that insecurity book? <laughs> um, got an extra copy of that. Um, anyway, um, I know that you guys have been feasting all week on Jesus. I know that you guys have been hearing like from some incredible people, uh, and so how I would love to like frame this time tonight and, and what... Uh, the goal is, is uh, like, I, my goal is not that you would leave here even remembering uh, like what I said. Um, I think I believe, and it's a lot like, where, who was it? Is, is, are, you, are you the See Jesus guy with the mask on back there? No, where's the See Jesus guy? Robert, was that his name? Oh, great. Um, thanks, Robert, for sticking around. Um, no, uh, kidding. Um, but, like, it, it's just what he said. Like, tonight I hope that we see through the glass, truly, um, and, and that in three weeks from now you don't remember, like, the notes that you took or even, like, what I said. You just remember, like, I think, I, think I, I was fed that night. Like, I think I ate something that night, and it was good for my soul. It's like if I asked you, what would you have for dinner four Tuesdays ago, you wouldn't remember. But I, I'm pretty sure you remember that you ate something. And so that tonight would be, like, Man, I, I, don't, I don't even, I'm not trying to like be epic or try to make something that is like, man, that's the greatest thing we've ever heard. And remember when Elliot gave that talk about whatever, but just that when you remember the last night here, you remember I left the RYM uh, retreat refreshed because I was, I was fed every night. Um, we feast on Jesus. We look through the glass uh, together. So um, we're going to be in an interesting passage, or at least interesting in the sense that I don't know that um, it makes a whole lot of sense on at first look, like why we would be in this, but we're going to study uh, ministry through the eyes and, and, and ink of Paul um, from Philippians chapter 1. Um, 
And we're going to look at uh, the opening 11 verses. Um, we're going to look at the, the tension and the joy of ministry uh, through the, the, the eyes and the, and the ink of Paul. So if you've got your Bibles, Philippians chapter 1, first 11 verses. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you're all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, um, man, it's hard to be present. It's hard to be here and not just stare at the glass. It's, it's so hard. It's hard to even, when we think we're looking through the glass, um, to feel like it's pitch black outside, and, and we, we just can't figure out. We know the mountains are there. We know the beauty is there. We know you're there. Um, but sometimes it's so hard to see through the glass. And so you tell us that we see through your glass dimly now and we get glimpses um, that we call even Ebenezer moments. And, and, and it doesn't even need to be epic. It doesn't need to be um, cosmic. But tonight, would you, would you wipe the fog off the glass? Tonight, would you, um, would you shine uh, the, the sun on the, on the landscape that we would see Jesus, that we would, we would behold him? Um, and we would leave this place uh, knowing, I don't, I, don't, I don't know everything, but I know I just was, was with Jesus. And I know that uh, my soul has been fed. I know that I can't be different because I've had a fresh encounter uh, with the living Jesus. Would you do that? Um, you do it through your word. You promise to do it through your word, so we're calling you on your promise. Would you do it tonight? Would you um, send your spirit to this place to... Cast a spotlight on Jesus for our sake and your glory, we pray. I ask God in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so like I said, we're going to look at the, the kind of the tension and the joy of ministry. But, I mean, that's what you do. That's what I do. We're in ministry. So that's a very fitting thing to look at. But I want to also not just look at uh, what we're going to look at through the, the, the eyes and, and ink of Paul as it pertains to ministry. I, I want to look at your life. Uh, and ministry is a, is a big part of your life. I know that. And so... The tension and joy of ministry or the tension and joy of life is what we're looking at um, through this opening uh, part, opening paragraph to the Philippian church. So Philippians has been called the epistle of joy. Almost everything in the book is Paul leading the, the church at Philippi to joy, uh, but it, it comes in this upside down way. It comes in this um, uh, counterintuitive way for Paul and the, and the recipient who's reading. Chapter three, the infamous verse, you know, I consider everything a loss for the surpassing joy of knowing Jesus Christ. It's like this, I have to lose everything in this upside down way in order to gain the joy of knowing Jesus. So Paul is kind of like 
turning over the tables of their lives. Like you want joy, but joy doesn't come by climbing a ladder and joy doesn't come by adding more things to your life and joy doesn't come by mastering something and growing the way that you want to grow. Joy comes by losing and dying and loosening your grip. And so we're going to look at what Paul is losing his grip on as he writes this letter, like the first 11 verses. What is he losing his grip on? And so much so, what does he open his hands up to to be able to gain because his hands are open to pick it up? So a little context, what was going on in Philippi? Uh, You can read what's going on in Philippi uh, in Acts chapter 16, uh, and it is a crazy story. Uh, Paul leaves Thessalonica, and and he's kind of asking the Lord, all right, where do you want us to go to uh, plant the next church? To share the gospel next, should we go here? Should we go to, you know, should we go to Asia Minor? Should we head east? And, and the Spirit keeps, keeps directing them, and they go, and they finally land at Philippi. Um, and, and Paul is like, all right, Lord, we're here. What do you want us to do? And they go down to the river where there's a prayer gathering of women. And Paul starts sharing the gospel at the river. If you've, you know, read Acts 16, you know this. And one of the women was a rich, purple, silk, wealthy trading woman um, and her name was Lydia, and she hears the gospel, and the Spirit opens her eyes, and she converts. And so we've got our first convert in Philippi, and she's so excited about this gospel that she's heard. She says, Paul, you got to come back to my house. I want you to share this gospel with my family. On their way back to Lydia's house, this uh, slave, this human trafficking victim, this slave girl, who we don't know her name, this young girl who had a spirit of divination, uh, who could uh, see the future. She was traded and sold to men and women to tell their futures, uh, she sees Paul and his crew walking by, and she just starts yelling out at them and says, these people know the Lord. These people are from the Lord. And it says in Acts 16, I mean, I went back and reread it. It's kind of comical. Paul um, is annoyed by her. He's like, well, someone just shut this girl up, please. And so he goes to cast the spirit out of her, not because he cares about her, because he's tired of her. Like, she's yelling at us and annoying us and following us through town. So he casts the spirit out of this young teenage human trafficking slave, human trafficking victim slave, and then she's like, comes to her senses and is like, who are you? And he shares the gospel with her. She's a convert. So we got two converts in Philippi so far, Lydia, rich silk trading woman, and slave girl, foreman, former fortune teller. Well, then the slave girl's bosses, former bosses, are pissed that their, their moneymaker now can't make them money anymore. And so they have Paul thrown in jail. While Paul's in jail, he and his crew start singing hymns and singing songs and praying in the middle of the night. There's an earthquake, and the walls come down of the prison, and the shackles come loose. And so everybody, all the prisoners are about to go free, and the Philippian jailer comes up, and he's about to kill himself, it says in Acts 16. And Paul goes, you don't have to do that. We're not going anywhere. And the Philippian jailer's like, what is going on with you guys? And so they share the gospel with him, and he converts. So you've got three converts in Philippi. This is your church planting team. This is your ministry planting. This is your core group. Rich, silk trading Lydia, slave girl, former fortune teller, and Philippian jailer. So I don't know how many like church planting fantasy drafts you've done. Um, <laughs> but that's not anybody's like top three. No one is. And then they go back to the Philippian jailer's house and Lydia's house and their families and their friends. And there's this little buzz going around about, you know, this, this new religion in town. And, and they finally just like, Paul, we were wrong to throw you in jail, the city officials, but you, you got to go. There's too much ruckus going on. So Paul leaves. So that's the context of, of the, the, like, that's the church that Paul's writing back to when he pens this letter. And we would look at this and we would go, God, what are you doing? Like, what? You want to start at, Philippi was this major city, booming economically. It was one of the second biggest cities 
uh, in, in Macedonia, like this northern Greece area. Like it was, it was massive. It was a player. It was like an it city. And these are the three that you're sending in, like, and you're removing Paul from them. Like, and this is who you want to lead the church charge in Philippi. Like, God, what is going on? But Paul adores these people. Like, he, he loves these. He's obsessed with these people. He can't get enough of these people. He's ecstatic about them. Listen, listen to the language that Paul uses after he does his intro, starting in verse 3. Listen, listen to the language that Paul uses. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Do you hear the joy in his tone? Like, you guys, when I pray about you, every time I'm thinking about you guys, I, like, I can't help but think of you with joy. You guys make my prayer a prayer of joy because of your partnership in the gospel. That word partnership is a Greek word you've probably heard and studied, koinonia. It literally means it just connotates like anytime there's a mutual liking of something, anytime there's a mutual bond, anytime there's like a, hey, we like the same movies, or hey, anytime like we've got a shared business, or we're, we're citizens of Rome, or we go to the same synagogue, like there's koinonia happening if there's a shared interest in something. Aristotle, 300 years before Paul, said all friendship involves koinonia. And so there's a common Greek word that Paul says, hey, you guys are my koinonia. You guys are a koinonia to each other. Paul uses this word a bunch of times in the book of Philippians, and here's what he's doing. Like, do you remember the church plant team? They had no koinonia before they met Jesus. And part of what Paul's trying to do to them is he's trying to say, hey, you guys actually have the ability to jump over cultural lines, racial lines, economic lines, and you guys are actually able, with nothing to bring you together before, you guys have the ability to have a koinonia stronger and tighter than anybody else in your city. You are a koinonia with each other. And because y'all are together, like, we're, we're in this. You guys are my people. Like, you're my koinonia. You're my OG crew. Like, this is, this is it. This is, like, we are one, and I, we're, we have a bond. You make my prayer a prayer of joy, even though we have nothing in common. Like, Lydia and slave, slave girl and Philippian jailer weren't hanging out before this. But then because of the gospel, they, they got united on something that went way deeper than just the fact that they, like, could have been to the same, you know, Colosseum or something, you know, like they would have like enjoyed going to the same town and village and doing the same things. Paul's trying to say the gospel has bound y'all together and bound y'all to me. And we, we have a tightness that cannot be broken because of that. And then not only look at Paul saying the gospel has bound us together in a deep koinonia partnership, but look at, look at how deep his love goes for them. It's kind of all throughout the opening verses, but look at verse 8 to focus for just a second. He says, for God is my witness. Only time Paul says that in the New Testament, by the way. God is my witness. You've got to believe me on this. God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Well, that word affection there caught my attention. Like, why does Paul use that word? Why, does Paul say, why doesn't Paul say, like, I yearn for you with the love of Christ Jesus, or I yearn for you with the compassion of Christ Jesus, or the phileo, the brotherly love of Christ Jesus? Why does he use that word, affection? Well, affection, the English translation, and even its Greek root, speaks to this place in you that you have a deep love for someone because they have affected you. You have an affection for them because you have been affected by them. You affect me. You affect me in such a way that I can't help but move towards you. You affect me in such a way that I can't help but want to be with you. 
You affect me in such a way that I can't help but love you. These are your favorite students. Like the ones that are just like, no one has to tell me to hang out with them. Even if I wasn't getting paid to do this, I would want to go like tell them about Jesus. I would want to go like hang out with them and be with them and like know how they're doing. And I want, like you've maybe texted some of them even while you're here, right? Like you've checked in on them because you just, you care about them. I was thinking about like my, when I, my youth ministry students that, that fall in this category for me. Um, I haven't been in youth ministry in, gosh, 10 or 11 years. I still check on those kids. Like I still like, these are the ones that just like they have a place in you because you just, it means something to you. That's what Paul, that's the word Paul uses. Another place in the New Testament where that word is used, uh, it's in later on, later on uh, in, in uh, Philemon when Paul is talking about Onesimus, but he says like, I'm sending you my very heart. Like my very heart is coming to you in the form of this person. Like I can't even talk about Onesimus's heart without talking about my heart. Like it, they, are, they are so intertwined. I just have this deep, deep love of passion. I have a yearning. These are the kinds of people in your life that you want to have empathy for. Like I know empathy is a virtue and we all need to grow in empathy and we do. But that like some people, like we need to be trained in empathy. Like you need to like forget about yourself and learn what it's like to experience what they're experiencing. These are the people that no one has to tell you to do that. You just want to know what their pain is like. You want to know what their joy is like. You want... You want, to, you want to be one in heart with them. This is who Paul is talking to in Philippi, these, this, this church plant team. Remember who he's talking to. And Paul is saying to them, you guys are my people. You guys are my koinonia. You have affected me. I have a deep, deep love for you. So pause for just a minute and remember just briefly the like overarching theme of the book of Philippians, book of joy, the epistle of joy and joy comes by losing. Joy comes by opening your death grip on something. Joy comes by dying. Joy comes by like considering everything a loss for the sake of gaining Christ. Well, think about this Paul who's penning this letter. If you were Paul and you felt this way about a group of people, or, and you probably do. You probably have people in your life right now that you feel this way about. Your koinonia, your partners in the gospel, your people, your favorite students. Do you think if you were Paul or if you were you, you have an idea in your head of how that relationship or how your ministry to those people should go? Do you think like there's an expectation, sure, like, but I'm not even necessarily talking about just an expectation. Like, do you think it goes to the kind of place where you're like, surely Jesus wants this relationship and this ministry to work out this way too, right? Like, it's not just that I want this, for, and I want to be close to these people, and I want to see them transformed, and I want these girls or these boys to get the gospel and to see through the glass, but, like, surely Jesus wants that too, right? And you've got, a, you've got a version in your head of what that would mean and what that would look like and what transformation for them would look like and what growth for them would look like and what healing for them would look like. You've got an idea for that. You can imagine Paul does too. There's just one problem with that for Paul. One thing we haven't mentioned about the context of the letter. Look again at verse 7. This is, this is critical. It says a lot of what we've already said, but pay attention to one contextual clue. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you. It's like the love I have for you because I hold you in my heart, right? This like deep affection for you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul's in prison. Paul has a deep love for these people. He's writing to them. 
the bond they have, the affection that he has for them, but he's writing to them from prison. And here's what's maybe even more amazing. No one knows for sure, but we, you could get out all the like historical evidence and context for this and why most scholars, most scholars of the book of Philippians uh, think that Paul was, he was in jail a bunch, but that he was in jail in Rome when he wrote this, meaning Paul's about to face his execution. Paul's about to die. Paul doesn't know if he's making it out of jail alive. Paul doesn't know if how this relationship is going to play out. Paul doesn't know if he's ever going to see these people again. He has no idea how they're doing. Like they're corresponding like via letter and messenger. They're not like texting and getting updates. And like he has no idea how they're doing. He's dying to be with them. They, they have his very heart. They're koinonia partners in the gospel and, they, and he longs to be with them. I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ and I'm stuck in a jail cell. So here's what's happening. Like literally use, use your redeemed imagination for a moment to like imagine Paul in his jail cell, most likely in Rome, writing this letter, and as he's writing it, as he's like pinning this letter, chained to somebody else, to these people that he adores, like listen to what is having to come out of his death grip. Listen to what he's having to lose his death grip on. His idea of how his life and ministry should be going. Paul is having to lose his idea, his version of how his life in ministry should go or should be going. He's saying, I love these people from the deepest place in me. I have a partnership with them. I have a bond with them. I yearn to be with them. Doesn't God want that for me too? Like, isn't that what God wants for me? Like, you're trying to, like, you're pouring out your life to these kids and you want to see them come to know Jesus more. And like, you want, to, you, want to ha- you want them to have the experience that you've had with Jesus and you have this version of how this would play out and you're going, I love them. I can't, I can't produce a love like this for them. It's just involuntary. They've affected me and I want this for them and they're koinonia partners. Doesn't God want the same thing that I want for them? Why would God give me this deep desire for them if he's not going to let it play out the way that I want it to play out? Doesn't he want it to play out that way too? Surely God would not give me this yearning and not let it be fulfilled. You can imagine Paul saying, and he says it, he says it many times in the letter if you read Philippians. I really want to come be with you. I don't know if I'm coming, but I plan on it. Like the moment I'm free, I'm coming to see you. You're my people. If I come see you, I can't wait to hug you. If I see you, I can't wait to like share a meal with you. Like I just, I want to come be with you. But Paul's in jail. He has no idea if he's ever going to see them again. He doesn't know what will happen. So Paul is literally, like in real time as he's writing it, to these beloved friends of his having to lose his idea of how his life and ministry should be going. Do you have versions of how your life and ministry should be going? Do you have ideas for how it should have gone up until this point and how it should be going? Like when you leave this place and COVID has blown all this up, I know, But like, God, don't you want the same things that I want for these kids? Don't you want the same things that I want for this church and these families? Like, do you have an awareness of the expectations that you have for your own life? And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying, are you aware that then how subtly that can go? Jesus, don't you want the same thing? Like, why why would you not want this, Jesus? Why would you not want this to, to go the way that I want this to go? So if that's what Paul is losing his idea of how his life and ministry should go, what did he gain? And what would we gain 
if we lost our death grip, what would we gain if we lost the same thing? Here's what Paul gains. And literally, like, Paul was human. Imagine, like, he was, he, us Reformed people, we, like, we, we give Paul way too much credit. I mean, he was amazing, but he wasn't Jesus. We're not looking through the glass at Paul. So we're looking through the glass at Jesus, the Jesus that rescued Paul. And so there's, but we are, we're, we're, we're watching Paul, like, follow me as I follow Christ. He says that, like, he can teach us some things, but he's not the hero. Look at, look at, what, look at what he gains as he loses his idea and he can only gain it because he sees through the glass and sees Jesus. But this is what he gains. He gains a present tense rest that can only come from an unabandoned future. He gains a present tense rest that can only come from an unabandoned future. Look with me at verse 6. He says this, and I am sure of this. Sure, confident of this, other translations say, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, especially in our circles, that's one of the most well-known and oft-quoted verses in the entire New Testament. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. This is the perseverance of the saints. Like this is, and, and it's true. It, like that, that verse works when you pull it out of context. <laughs> It works. Like, you should keep pulling it out of context. But in context, it goes deeper. It actually means a lot more when you know what's going on. It, it, it has this, like, 10-mile depth of beauty and stability if we understand the Paul that wrote it and what he's, what's happening to him as he's writing it. He's writing in prison to these beloved friends that he can't be with. He doesn't know if he'll ever see them again. He doesn't know how the ministry is going to work out for them. Like, we're 2,000 years later. Like, we're here because Paul planted churches like he did in Philippi, but he didn't know how this was going to go. He left three ragtag people in Philippi, has no idea how is this going to, is it, how is this going to work out. I have no idea. I know how I want it to work out. But he tells them that his confidence, his rest, those are synonyms, his confidence and his rest comes not from knowing how the future will play out, but from knowing the one that rules and overrules the future. He says, look, God doesn't start something and not finish it. And God can't start something. God can't start a work in you. God can't start the church in Philippi and promise to bring it to completion and be totally absent from the, from the in-between. He can't guarantee that he finishes what he starts if he's not also committed to being there in every moment in between and having a sovereign providential rule over every moment between the start and the finish. So it's not just that, hey, if he started it in you, he's going to finish it in you. The meat of this, the glory of this is not that he finishes what he started. It's that he can't promise to finish something that he started and not be heavily involved at every step in between. He can't abandon the process if he's going to guarantee the end. Paul's saying that the survival of the church in Philippi doesn't even depend on my love for you or what I want for you or my initiative or my church planning strategies or my goals for this year or your willpower or your strength or your endurance to face the persecution that you're facing. Paul is saying God started the work of the church in Philippi and God will complete the work of the church in Philippi and he will be with you at every step in between. That's Paul's confidence. That's Paul's rest. 
It's like a parent letting go of their growing children. My oldest precious one is back there. She's only eight and a half. I haven't had to like let her go completely yet. You know, she's still in elementary school. But I've walked through like baby seasons of that. But I've walked with a lot of parents. You have walked in this. Like when you, if you're a middle school youth director and you like graduate eighth graders or if you're like a high school senior high and you like graduate seniors, you've walked with parents that have done this. The pain of letting children that you love live with the consequences of their decisions, not being able to be there the way that you want to be there for them, them not wanting you to be there for them the way that you want to be there for them. (laughs) The pain of knowing that the relationship is changing. And Paul, like a good parent in the faith, is saying to them, I may not always be here for you, but I'm standing on the confidence, I'm standing on the rest that the one that brought you into this family is never going to treat you like an orphan. That's how I can be okay in jail halfway across the world. That's how I can like rest. That's what the present tense rest I have is knowing that the one that brought you in will never leave you like an orphan. And verse six is the thing, like I imagine Paul, never talked to him, so I don't know this, but I imagine Paul literally writing verse six for him. Like, he needed to know verse 6. Surely they did too, no doubt. We did too, thousands of years later. So it was for us. But like Paul, like, through tears in his jail cell, like, writing these, these words, like, I am sure of this. It's this got to be true, or I don't want to wake up tomorrow morning. Like, Paul needed verse 6. And it's what allowed him to see all the ways that he wishes this call in his life would have gone, all the ideas he had for his ministry and all the things that it should have gone this way, and it lets him set it down. Verse 6 literally like ungrips his clenched fists. It opens his hands. So here, here's, here's the gospel balm. Here, here's the fullest understanding of verse 6 in its context. Here's what it says to you and I, ministry or not. Here's what it says to your life. Even if the world that you wish would go a certain way or the ministry that you wish would go a certain way, the life that you have that you wish would go a certain way, even if it takes a turn that you never wished it would have, Jesus does not know how to abandon you. That's what verse 6 just told you. He's the one who started something in you, and he promises to finish that work, which means he will be with you every nanosecond between the start and the end of it. I've heard it said before that it would be a cosmic impossibility for Jesus to not be faithful to you. It says it all throughout the Psalms and Isaiah too. Like the sun will stop rising when your Lord forgets you. Like the cosmos would have to be like altered and thrown out of loop and cycle for that to, for that to happen first. When you take the idea you have for your life and your ministry and, and then the collision of your idea with some other outcome, like, like take, again, ministry or not, take, take the ideas you have for your life. Take the romantic idea, ideas you have for your life. Take, take the financial ideas you have for your life. Take the ideas you have for your kids, biological or ministry kids. Take the ideas you have for the way that you want your life to go and then run those ideas through the red light of your life into some horrific T-bone. Like, this is how I see my life going. This is how I see my ministry going. This is how I see my family going. This is how I see this going. And then literally, like, let your fear fantasy run wild for a minute 
and let it run through a red light of some god-awful other ending than the one that you want it to, to be. Like make, make, it, make it as visceral and as real as you can for a moment. Like imagine a marriage. Now some of you are married, some of you aren't. Either way, imagine the marriage you have or imagine the marriage you want. Imagine it starting wild as a fire with romance and then getting quenched by some affair. Imagine your children growing up, the children, your biological ones are the ones that you minister to. Imagine them all growing up and leaving you and leaving the faith, all of them. Imagine the life of comfort that you want only being marked by pain and loss. Imagine the career that you have only being marked by meaninglessness and purposelessness. Imagine the sin that you want to kick so bad right now still haunting you for decades to come. And now ask this question. Would Jesus Christ still call me his? Would Jesus still take me as his own? Would he still claim me? Would I still belong to him? Would I still be accepted in his home and welcomed at his table? Verse 6 just answered all of those questions for you. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You have an unabandoned future. Even if, even if you are the one that runs your tank till it's empty, even if you are the one that runs the red light and it's your fault that your life doesn't go the way that you hoped it would go, even if you do it, it means there will still be one that won't ever leave you. Paul said it thousands of years ago. It's maybe uh, better said by nobody else in the modern day than Patty Griffin. Who said, but if you break down, I'll drive out and find you. And if you forget my love, I'll try to remind you. And I'll stay by you when it don't come easy. Let's pray. Jesus, um, running the red light of that uh, is terrifying. But what we're most afraid of is um, what that would mean for our life, what that would mean for our relationship with you. And our future is only scary if we're alone. And so would you minister to my friends, minister to my own heart tonight that loves to, um, loves to hold on with a death grip for how my life should be going. Would you loosen our hands knowing that um, you don't know how to leave your bride. We love you, Jesus. Certainly know that you love us more. We ask all this in your name. Amen. I think in six years of leading RYM worship, I think every single event that I've led has in